The National Institute on Drug Abuse estimates that between 40 and 60 percent of addicts will relapse within one year of getting sober. The likelihood decreases in time, but it never completely goes away. Addiction is a powerful disease that can take hold of even the strongest-willed people. That's why the first step of 12-step programs is to admit that you are powerless over the disease. If you think you can will yourself better, you can't. By 1999, Ken Caminiti was still publicly the guy who had beaten alcoholism and addiction to win the 1996 MVP, but privately, he was in the midst of a full-on relapse. This had to be painful for Caminiti, someone who didn't want to let his family, friends, or teammates down. Someone who had crafted an image of himself as the ultimate tough guy and prided himself on it. As one sports writer put it, John Wayne in a baseball uniform. 20 years ago, the predominant thought was still that addiction was the result of personal weakness and bad choices, and it wasn't a disease. That paradigm has shifted only in recent years. We don't know exactly what the internal monologue was that Ken had at the time, but his quotes all read like a man trying to regain control over his life. After turning down a $21.5 million contract with Detroit to return to Houston for only $9.5 million, Caminiti said, I'm sure a lot of the big-time ball players are going to be laughing at me and saying I messed up the market. I'm not going to worry about what anyone else has to say. I only worry about my own happiness and what's best for me and my family. I wanted to come back in a bad way. I wasn't going to take no for an answer. I'm just fortunate everything worked out and I didn't have to go somewhere else. Years later, Caminiti added an addendum to that quote. I wanted to come back and try to figure out why I was doing these things at night why I was drinking. I know why. I just didn't want to face it. This is Secondary Lead, The Rise and Fall of Ken Caminiti, a 10-part series on the life and career of one of the most important baseball players of the 80s and 90s. If you like this show, please click subscribe and leave a rating or a review. And now, Chapter 8, The Last Dance. Major League Baseball enjoyed a spike in popularity following the home run chase of 1998 between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. But neither McGuire's Cardinals nor Sosa's Cubs were able to eclipse the 1998 Houston Astros for the National League Central crown. Houston won 102 games, edging Chicago by a 12.5 game margin for first place. But they were bounced in the first round of the playoffs by Ken Caminiti's San Diego Padres. The Houston core of Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell remained in 1999, but the supporting cast changed. As the Astrodome began its final season, Ken Caminiti was back in Houston, and he was looking to reclaim his life on and off the field. Caminiti's agent Rick Licht looked to capitalize on his triumphant return for the benefit of his client. Licht was a power broker agent in the late 1990s, representing such athletes as Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., Alex Rodriguez, and Ken Caminiti. In 1999, he started a company which developed a comic book series turning athletes into superheroes. Caminiti starred in the first issue of Super Sluggers, defending planet Earth alongside Bonds, Griffey, and Mike Piazza. Licht also worked with the Astros to develop a breakfast cereal. 
Houston's Triple Play breakfast cereal hit supermarket shelves in 1999 and prominently featured a picture of three Astros players on the front, decked out in black and gold Houston gear. On the left, Jeff Bagwell smiles while holding a spoonful of the cereal in his left hand. On the right, Craig Biggio stands with his mouth open and is ready to take a bite. In the middle, Ken Caminiti has his menacing goatee parted in a toothy smile. Both of his massive hands are cupped around a batting helmet which is overloaded with the cereal. Checking in at 110 calories per serving, the box notes that a portion of the proceeds from sales benefit DARE, the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program teaching kids about the dangers of drugs. On the back of the box was information about a contest where you could win signed memorabilia. There was also an order form where you could purchase black and gold t-shirts and hats. Caminiti's Padres teammates, coaches, and front office staff had noticed personality changes during the 1998 season. But those concerns only came to light years later, and heading into the 1999 season, the chatter was that he, Bagwell, and Biggio would give the Astros one of the most powerful infields of all time. Even with star outfielder Moise Salou out for the season with a knee injury and the departure of Randy Johnson, Houston was selected to win its third straight NL Central title. This year wouldn't be easy though. The Astros faced stiff competition from the Cardinals, Cubs, and Cincinnati Reds in the 16 division and were banking a lot on Caminiti to stay healthy, something he hadn't been able to do since 1995. Of course, Ken was dealing with his own issues, stemming from both his relapse into addiction and from his breakup with the San Diego Padres. In an interview during spring training, Caminiti defended John Moores while ripping Larry Lucchino for the team's dismantling after the 98 World Series. Ken told reporters, John's a good friend and a great owner, and he's a people person. Larry Lucchino has no people skills. He's the money man. He'll do anything for money. It's around the whole clubhouse. Larry puts a damper on things. A lot of people are unhappy. Lucchino offered a terse response. He said, the last time I looked, winning popularity contests from agents and players wasn't part of the job. Richard Justice got to know Lucchino when he was covering the Baltimore Orioles. Larry could be tough. Oh my God. In Baltimore, he and Scott Boris, I mean, you just wanted, at some point you wanted to go, you two guys need to take it out outside and let us finish the contract in here. I mean, it was brutal, but that's who Larry was. And he's, I mean, he, he has left a positive impact on the game. But did he piss people off at times? He certainly did. Off the field, Ken Spring got off to a great start. In one of his non-baseball ventures, Caminiti was the part owner of a show dog named Charmaine. She was not a big dog as you might expect from Caminiti, but rather a petite Bassett Griffon Vendine, a small, fluffy French hound breed. In early February, Charmaine competed at the 123rd annual Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show and won Best in Breed. She was considered a contender for best in show, but placed second in the hound group. Charmaine retired from competition after the show and was considered the greatest and most decorated petite Bassett Griffon Vendine in history. While she looks soft and fluffy on the outside, Ken told Sports Illustrated, that dog has an attitude. On the field, Ken's spring was turbulent in 99. In the final week of March, he was hospitalized with an acute sinus infection and there was talk of him going on the disabled list to start the season. He managed to beat off the infection and was in the lineup on opening day, 
batting cleanup for the Astros and going 0-3 with a walk as Houston beat Chicago 4-2. Ken got off to a slow start in the first two weeks of the 99 season, but even as hits started coming, there was noticeably no power. He was hitting 292 40 games into the season, but had only five doubles and two home runs. He was dealing with a tender ankle at the time and laid the blame on that for his slow start. But Ken was also now 36, an age where players are typically well into their decline. On May 22nd, he hit the disabled list. At first, the injury was called a strained right calf, but it turned out that it was actually a torn muscle, which forced him to miss half of the season. This injury had a big effect on Ken's mental health. After the season, he told reporters, the most frustrating part about it is that I know myself and I know what I can play with in terms of pain. I've played with just about everything, but I couldn't play with this. I couldn't do anything. They said it was just a strain and I felt soft for not being able to play with that. Reflecting back on my career, the one thing I'm most proud of is how my peers view me. They see me as a guy who's going to play no matter what. After six rehab games with AAA New Orleans, Caminiti's first minor league action in over a decade, he returned to the Astros lineup on August 16th. He went two for 12 without an extra base hit in his first four games. But on August 20th, he mashed two home runs, one from each side of the plate in a 16-inning win over the Florida Marlins. That included the game winner in the top of the 16th. From that point on, he was the Caminiti of old hitting 290 with 11 home runs in the final 38 games of the season. The Astros won the NL Central by one game over Cincinnati. Ken was headed to the postseason once again, and he looked to redeem himself for his failures in the 1998 World Series. The Astros had never won a playoff series in their history, and leading Houston to a victory over the Atlanta Braves in the NLDS would be the ultimate redemption. There's a popular misconception that before the 2002 collective bargaining agreement, steroids were not against the rules in Major League Baseball. This, of course, is false. Anabolic steroids were explicitly stated as a banned substance in a 1991 memo circulated by then-Commissioner Faye Vincent. That same memo was then recirculated by Bud Selig in 1996. Even before that, steroids were against baseball's drug policy which makes illegal the use of any prescription medication without a valid prescription. Anabolic steroids were categorized as a Schedule III controlled substance by Congress in 1990. Therefore, at that moment, they became against baseball's rules. Before screening began after the 2002 season, a player could only be tested after reasonable cause was found to conduct a test. These tests would come after the commissioner's office and the players' association negotiated if and when a test should even take place. As a result, any steroid test administered from 1991 through 2002 came long after allegations were made, and no player ever tested positive. Under these rules, team officials were supposed to report any incidents or discoveries to the commissioner's office, which would trigger a reasonable cause test. In 2002, Rob Manfred told the Senate subcommittee that the process was ad hoc at best and dysfunctional at worst. In 1999, Ken Caminiti narrowly avoided setting off those alarms. 
At some point during the season, Houston Traveling Secretary Barry Waters received a phone call from an employee of a hotel where the Astros had just stayed. He was notified that a package had just arrived at the hotel, addressed to an alias used by Ken Caminiti on the road. Waters had the package forwarded to him in Houston. When it arrived, Waters opened the package and found glass vials containing a white liquid that he believed to be anabolic steroids and vitamins. The liquid form of the popular anabolic steroid Winstraw is milky white in color. Waters told an investigation led by former Senator George Mitchell that he did not deliver the vials to Caminiti, but he also failed to notify team or league officials. He said he didn't know there was a policy in place that he had to report it. If he had, that would have served as a reasonable cause to subject Caminiti to a steroid test. But for now, he dodged the bullet. In Game 1 of the 1999 NLDS, the Astros held a 3-1 lead in the top of the ninth over Atlanta. Looking to take a 1-0 series lead over the favored Braves, Caminiti stepped to the plate against Mike Remlinger with two on and two outs. That bad throw. Caminiti, that one is hit deep. Left center field, way back there. It is gone! A three-run homer for Caminiti. And that's the one the Astros have been looking for all day long. For the second straight year, Caminiti lifted his team to victory with playoff heroics at Turner Field. But the Braves struck back and won the next two games and led 7-1 in the bottom of the eighth inning of Game 4 at the Astrodome. With two on and two out against John Smoltz, Ken stepped to the plate and placed his name in the record books. Ken Caminiti. He smashes one high and deep to center field. Jones racing back, all the way back to the wall. This one is off the wall. No, it's a home run. It came back, but it cleared the wall. A three-run homer for Caminiti. And suddenly, there is hope at the Astrodome. Seven to four, Atlanta. 34 years after Mickey Mantle hit the first home run in the Astrodome, the final home run in the building's storied history belonged to Ken Caminiti. But the game wasn't over yet. With two outs in the bottom of the ninth, Ken batted again, representing the tying run against Atlanta closer John Rocker. It seems as though they would rather risk having to face the go-ahead run than throw a, a hittable strike for the red-hot Caminiti. Deep center. Andrew Jones is there. And the ball game is over. The Atlanta Braves will have their own little final bit of Astrodome history as the Astrodome gets ready to shut its doors after 35 years of hosting Major League Baseball. The Atlanta Braves will do something that the Astros themselves were never able to do here. That is celebrate a postseason series win. Atlanta's series win was in spite of Caminiti's performance for Houston. He hit 471 in the series with three home runs and eight RBIs, carrying his blazing hot finish to the season into October. But it was time for Houston to turn over a new page in its franchise history. They moved out of what was once dubbed the eighth wonder of the world to Enron Field, a quirky, retractable roof stadium that was named for the soon-to-be-disgraced Houston-based energy company. 
Shortly after the Astros were eliminated, Caminiti went on a hunting trip near Laredo, Texas, just under five hours south and west of Houston, near the Mexican border. Early morning on Wednesday, October 20th, Caminiti fell off a deer blind, which is an elevated platform sometimes used in deer hunting. He broke three vertebrae in his lower back. Ken was laid up in the hospital for several weeks, but was able to recover and report to spring training on time. Stupid, that's all it was, Caminiti said of the incident, noting that it sounded a lot worse than it was. The Astros prepared for the 2000 season, and Ken Caminiti speculated that this could be his last year. Incredibly frustrated by the injuries of the past three seasons, Caminiti set a goal to stay healthy during the 2000 season, and said that if Houston didn't pick up his option for 2001 at the end of the year, he would retire. Almost immediately, the injury bug bit Caminiti in 2000. In early April, he missed a handful of games with a strained right hamstring. He did return and try to play one game in the midst of his injury, on April 15th at Qualcomm Stadium against the Padres. Ken was dealing with his calf injury during the one trip Houston made to San Diego in 1999, so this served as the homecoming for the only MVP in Padres history. Padres fans treated him to a resounding chorus of boos, just as they had booed Kevin Brown and Steve Finley in their returns a year earlier. It's incredible that a generally laid-back fan base would boo one of the most popular players in team history just for leaving, but that was the marketing of the game at the time. During and after the strike, owners did a great job of painting the players as greedy, selfish, and only motivated by money, despite the fact that owners were raking in billions of dollars a year. Players who signed elsewhere in free agency were painted as greedy and traitorous. Forget the fact that Caminiti turned down an offer worth $12 million more, and the Padres never made him a fair market value offer. In an extraordinary move, John Moores asked Padres beat writer Tom Krasovic to print an apology to Caminiti for the booze in the next day's newspaper. He accurately predicted that Ken would be hurt by the fans' reactions. Aside from the booze in San Diego, things were going well for Caminiti when he was healthy. He was hitting 331 with 10 home runs and 32 RBIs entering play on May 24th, when he received a visit from college teammate and friend Dana Corey. The last time I was I saw Ken, um, I was on a business trip back east. I was I had a chance to route back through Houston, so I called Ken. He was at his second tour with the Astros, and I came in for a game. Afterwards, um, I Ken and I went out and. You know, everybody knew who he was, and nobody knew who I was, and it was typical Ken. He, you know, we sat and had a couple beers, and, you know, was telling me about his girls, and, you know, that kind of stuff, and, you know, we just had a really nice night, and, and uh, you know, he paid for me to get a taxi to go back to the hotel, and, you know, the whole bit. I mean, it was just, it was typical Ken, right? And I think they had had a tough game. I, I think they had lost a game they were up big and I think Billy Wagner came on and, and blew the save and 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 Wagner was kind of hurt I think and people didn't know it and I remember we uh, were coming out of the parking garage and he had Nancy on speakerphone that was in Ken's car and two things two things I remember he signed every autograph for every kid that was there we was pulling out the parking lot wouldn't leave until he signed everybody's stuff. Number one. Number two, literally was 
voice was shaking. He was so upset at the fact that people were booing Billy Wagner because Billy had given so much to the team and he was trying to pitch through stuff and everything else and just Ken really loved Billy Wagner a lot. He was really bothered by the fan reaction to him that night. The Astros led 7-0 in the fifth inning of that game and led 7-5 in the ninth when Wagner allowed four runs in an eventual 9-7 win for Philadelphia. The game ended with Caminiti grounding out to first base. This one night helps us understand a whole lot about who Ken was at that point in time. He was still fiercely loyal to his teammates and friends, as evidenced by his defending of Wagner for playing hurt and bringing Corey, college friend, out with a group of MLB players and making him feel welcome. He was also still the generous guy, who after a frustrating and brutal loss, took the time to sign autographs for kids. Despite the hindsight comments about how Caminiti's personality began to change, a lot of people who were close to him didn't notice a difference. He was still the same old Cammy that they had always known. That's important when thinking about those struggling with alcoholism and substance abuse in our own lives. There may be problems, even severe ones, that don't manifest themselves in overt ways. Caminiti in particular seemed to be skilled at hiding his addiction from all but a select group. Caminiti cooled down in June, but was still hitting over 300 on June 15th when the Astros were on the road facing the Colorado Rockies. In the third inning, Caminiti injured his right wrist while swinging through a pitch from Kevin Jarvis and was removed from the game. X-rays were negative and it was speculated that he could miss at least two weeks. Ken returned to Houston for more tests and told reporters, if it's serious, I'm done. I am retiring. Further tests revealed that the injury was serious. He had a torn tendon sheath in his wrist, an injury which required surgery. He expected to be back in the lineup by September 1st, but he never made it back to the Astros that season. Ken dealt with the injury in the worst way possible, by drinking. With no baseball to escape to, things worsened off the field. There was one three-week period late in the summer where Ken was going out drinking on a nightly basis. He awoke on Labor Day in his home with Nancy, his father Lee, and his personal trainer Blake Blackwell staring at him. It was an intervention which he initially resisted but finally accepted, and he left the Astros to check into a 30-day program at the Smithers Clinic in New York City. In an interview with the Dallas Morning News in 2001, Caminiti recalled, I sat in the hospital for nearly 30 days and looked at myself, and everything runs through your mind. You think of everything negative, and then eventually everything positive. What I finally realized was that I had a second chance, and I didn't want to go out like a sucker. He contemplated retirement as the Astros declined to exercise their $5.5 million option for 2001. He decided to continue and make one last go of things. After he left the clinic, he attended 90 Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in 90 days and carried an AA directory with him on the road in 2001. Checking into the Smithers Clinic was life-changing for Ken. First, the incident poisoned his relationship with the Houston Astros, whom he said questioned his integrity. He said that in a meeting with Astros general manager Jerry Hunsicker and other team officials, it was questioned if he was actually trying to make a comeback from his injury. Both Hunsicker and owner Drayton McLean denied that allegation Understandable since asking an addict not to go to rehab so he can play baseball games is a bad look. 
Caminiti held on to bitter feelings towards certain individuals in the organization, although he never named who those individuals were. I didn't even get a phone call from the Astros, Caminiti told Richard Justice in 2001. They all showed me where I stood with them. That's fine. I'll always hope they do well. The Astros will always be in my blood. I expected to take all the blows, and I got them. That's fine. He continued, Who knows how to deal with someone like me? I got some phone calls, and I didn't get some. It was my problem. Biggio said it was a family, and I was in the family. As it turns out, I guess I wasn't. Ken praised Biggio and Bagwell for their support, noting that they both stayed in touch throughout his process. He said Biggio did things he probably shouldn't have done. He was great. Bags is always going to be there. Ken felt as if the Astros organization had turned their backs on him in his time of need. In time, Ken's attitude toward the game of baseball became increasingly love-hate, and this incident certainly stoked that fire. The September stay in the Smithers Clinic was also where Ken met Maria Romero. Over the next four years, Romero became one of the most significant people in Caminiti's life. Since giving an interview to ESPN in 2004, Maria hasn't spoken publicly about her relationship with Ken. Until now. Yeah, we, we've been at Smithers. He was just a, a simple guy. He was, really, he was really no one. I didn't really know who he was. I came out of rehab before he did. He took my number down, so we kept in touch while he was still in there. I, I didn't even know who he was after the fact that someone got to me. He was talking to him. And I was like, yeah, I He was like, oh, man, that's like... In October 2000, one month after entering the Smithers Clinic, Ken and Nancy separated. He maintained that the couple still had a good relationship, and he remained a part of his daughter's lives. I have problems, I have voids that hurt, I don't really have a family life, and that's what I want most. I want to be with my girls, see them grow up, he told the LA Times in 2001. After Caminiti decided to play in 2001, Rick Licht went to work on pitching his services to teams as a bargain price slugger. One newspaper summarized Licht's pitch as two-thirds the offensive production of Manny Ramirez for one-third the price. He talked to the Yankees, Tigers, Mariners, Rangers, and Brewers, while the Red Sox and Braves also expressed interest. One day before Alex Rodriguez signed a record 10-year, $252 million contract with the Texas Rangers, Caminiti signed a modest one-year, $3 million pact with the club. The contract contained two option years and would have paid out nearly $21 million if Ken played all three seasons. This was part of a spending spree that the Rangers went on before the 2001 season. Signing A-Rod, Caminiti, Ruben Sierra, Andres Galarraga, and Pat Mahomes to form what GM Doug Melvin thought would be a fearsome team. They were not. The 2001 Rangers finished in last place in the AL West, and all of their big acquisitions flopped except for A-Rod. With his signature goatee now sporting a few gray hairs, Caminiti was hitting just 195 on May 10th, and had been dropped all the way down to eighth in the batting order for the first time since 1989. Ken admitted that this shook his confidence, and it caused his struggles to worsen. As this was going on, Ken took time to sit down with a student reporter from the Spartan Daily, San Jose State's student newspaper when Texas was in Oakland. It profiles a player looking back at his career with a tinge of sadness, 
facing the mortality that all athletes must face at a certain age. Richard Justice painted a profoundly sad picture of Caminiti in a June 7th profile in the Houston Chronicle. It's 1900 words of pure heartbreak, which begin like this. Ken Caminiti describes his new life as one stripped of everything except the basics. He wakes up in his apartment or hotel room most mornings, gobbles a handful of vitamins, eats breakfast, and then counts the hours until he can leave for the ballpark. He may attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or browse the mall or bookstore, but he's usually sitting in front of his locker in the Texas Rangers clubhouse at least six hours before game time. In such safe and familiar surroundings, he may lift weights, take early batting practice, or simply stare at the nearest television set as he counts down the minutes until the most structured portion of his day begins. That's the easy part, fielding dozens of ground balls, taking batting practice, and playing the games. A few weeks after turning 38, Caminiti still performs with a grit and competitive fire that long ago made him one of the most admired players in baseball. It's after games that are different these days. That's when he says he goes back to his room, avoiding the nightlife that he believes led to his downing one iced tea glass of vodka after another last summer. This is the only life I have right now, he said. I don't have anywhere else to go. Justice remembers that interview. What do you think his legacy in the game of baseball is and should be? Well, it's, his legacy among the people that played with him and against him is going to be this. Uh, he was a great competitor. He was a great teammate. He was a great person. He was a guy that liked to have fun. Um, obviously, there was a – he played for the Texas Rangers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for – Oh, my God. Uh, that's what I remember that, too, is that – oh, my God. Uh, Cammy was good when he had to be someplace at 1 p.m. When he, when there was the structure of the season, I have lunch at one, I put my uniform on at three, I go here to the video room at four, I play this. Um, and you could see like in talking to him, it was, I'm just staying in this lane. I was once at a concert in Virginia where Steve Earle was playing, who'd had drug problems, and uh, people are yelling songs, play this, play this, and he goes, um, I gotta, I'm not that far into my recovery, I have to stay with this list right here. And I felt like um, all hell breaks loose when the season ends, because you don't have to be someplace at one. You don't have somebody telling you everything. Look, the plane leaves at this time. There's going to be this meal on the plane. You know, the structure saves a lot of people. And, uh, geez, I had forgotten all about that. I, I remember I just, in that, that time with the Rangers, he was trying so hard to stay in his lane. And it was the off season that killed him. Um, you know, and life after baseball, he just, it just was, the struggle was too much. Having already missed time in 2001 with a partial rotator cuff tear in his right shoulder and a groin strain, Caminiti strained his hamstring on June 16th and went on the 15-day disabled list. He was activated on July 2nd and released at his request by the Rangers. But baseball was not over for Caminiti just yet. Merv Retmond, 
his hitting coach in San Diego, and now the hitting coach of the Atlanta Braves, who were in second place in the NL East behind Philadelphia and looking for help. Injuries and ineffectiveness forced the Braves to rebuild their infield in the middle of the season. Marcus Giles was summoned from the minor leagues to play second base, Ray Sanchez was acquired to play short, and Ken Caminiti was brought in to man first. I talked the ball club in Atlanta into trading for him, and that was a real bad idea. When we traded for him in Atlanta and he came over, he was swinging so hard there was no way he could control the barrel. And we had a mutual friend that assured me that he was clean, and I really, 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 really doubt that. He just, he didn't even resemble the same, you know, player and, and, and or person. Hmm. You know, he would come to the ballpark because he, because he did stay up late at night or he even lifted weights late at night. He would go over to the gym because he didn't sleep, he couldn't sleep. So when he get to the ballpark, a lot of times he'd just go in and go to bed. And uh, that's what he did even the year he was clean. But um, he, he was always alert when he was up. And um, he, he was having trouble all the time. Ken debuted for the Atlanta Braves on July 6th at Fenway Park in Boston, banging out three hits in a 6-5 Atlanta victory over the Red Sox. Kennedy had a strong July with the Braves, and it looked like he had finally recaptured his form, hitting 288 with five home runs in 74 plate appearances. Rico Bronia, the first baseman he was there to replace, showed him the ropes at first, but it was a defensive struggle for Ken. Once August came, he went cold at the plate, hitting just 181 with one home run for the rest of the season. The 2001 baseball season was interrupted in September after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York City. The first game played in New York after the attacks came on Friday, September 21st, when the New York Mets hosted Ken Caminiti's Atlanta Braves at Shea Stadium. It was a stirring, emotional, and patriotic night, kicked off with a rendition of God Bless America sang by Diana Ross and a 21-gun salute. After the national anthem, the two teams came together and embraced on the infield as bagpipes played Amazing Grace and first responders left the field. Caminiti batted for the first time in the top of the second as New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani was being interviewed by the Mets broadcast. This is the way life gets back to, uh, to normalcy, I mean, and, and they have to. People have to enjoy the parts of life that are, that are good. You, you can't concentrate just on the, on the tragedies. That was Giuliani's commentary as Caminiti flied out to left field on a one-two pitch from Bruce Chen. The game was still scoreless in the fourth when Caminiti came to the plate again while the Mets broadcast welcomed the family of a fallen firefighter into the booth. On a 1-1 pitch, Caminiti hit a ground ball up the first baseline that Todd Zeal couldn't handle and trickled into foul territory. Chipper Jones tried to score all the way from first base and would have been out at the plate by a mile, but Mike Piazza couldn't handle a throw and Jones scored on Caminiti's double to give Atlanta a 1-0 lead. In the bottom of the fourth, with the Mets having tied the game and threatening to take the lead, Ken made a defensive play that rivaled the play in Florida from 1996. With runners on second and third, Jay Payton hit a scorching two-hopper down the line that Caminiti fielded 10 feet behind the bag. Then, with his momentum carrying him into foul territory, he planted, leaped in the air, and threw a one-hop throw to first baseman Julio Franco to get Payton by a full step for the third out. The play in Florida from 1996 is arguably the better play. 
but considering Ken's numerous injuries which sapped him of his range and the relatively little amount of third base he played with Atlanta, this play is at least in the same category. Ken had one more bat in the game, singling against Chen in the top of the seventh before he was lifted for a pinch runner. Atlanta took a 2-1 lead in the top of the eighth before Mike Piazza hit an iconic home run against Steve Carsey in the bottom of the eighth to win it for the Mets. It was an amazing night, and it's risky to play the causation game, but if Caminiti doesn't make his play at third base in the fourth to Rob Payton, the Mets take the lead at that point. And who knows, Piazza's home run would have carried as much symbolism in healing the city. In a strictly baseball context, it was a huge game as well. The Mets were making a run at the first place Braves, which ultimately came up short. The Braves won the division and took on the Houston Astros in the first round of the playoffs. In the NLDS, Ken was a non-factor. He struck out against Mike Jackson in a pinch hitting appearance in game one, and he flew out to center against Octavio Dotel in Game 3. Coincidentally, his Game 1 plate appearance was against the same Mike Jackson that was the losing pitcher in Caminiti's debut in 1987, when Ken scored the winning run on a Gerald Young base hit. Atlanta swept Houston in three games in the NLDS, then got ready to take on the Arizona Diamondbacks. Ken was looking forward to that series, which would bring him to Phoenix where he could visit friend John Covington at his Steed Motorcycle Shop. Covington built Caminiti a custom bike in 1996 and was working on a second bike for him at that time. Covington said Ken was excited about heading to Arizona and the possibility of making it back to the World Series. Covington called Caminiti the day before the series began and said Ken informed him that the Braves were leaving him off the NLCS roster. He sounded bummed and totally crushed. You know, imagine a guy that's, you know, a couple years earlier, he was the king of the world, and then he's been traded a few times, and his shoulder's been operated on, and all that other stuff, and then just very little respect on the way out. Ken was given the option of traveling with the Braves for the series, but instead left the team and returned home to Houston. He told Sports Illustrated's Tom Verducci that once he was back home in Houston, Caminiti drove his car into a seedy section of town, rolled down his window, and asked a man on the street where he could score some coke. The Arizona Diamondbacks eliminated the Braves in five games and then beat the New York Yankees in an epic World Series, bringing an end to a run of three straight championships for the Yankees, a run that began in 1998 against Caminiti's Padres. On November 6th, two days after the World Series ended, Atlanta officially released Ken Caminiti. Ken filed for free agency with an eye toward playing another year. Merv Rettman said he had heard that several teams were interested in inviting Ken to spring training in 2002, but those offers would never come to fruition. At 1.35 p.m. on November 14, 2001, federal officers who were part of the FBI, DEA, and High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Team pulled over a white 2000 Mercedes-Benz. Officers said they stopped the car because the driver, Lamont Palmer looked suspicious. The officers never did acknowledge what made Palmer look suspicious, other than that he was a black man driving a $100,000 car in a fairly affluent white area. In a fairly clear-cut case of racial profiling, officers suspected the car might be stolen and ran the license plates. They discovered the car was registered to Ken Caminiti. Palmer told police that Caminiti had given him permission to drive the car to pick up his fiancée and their child, and they could ask the former big leaguer themselves if they didn't believe him. 
He told them that Caminiti was located in room 2025 of the Ramada Limited Hotel, just a few exits away on the Southwest Freeway. Harris County sheriffs were dispatched to the hotel to make sure Caminiti's car had not been stolen and that he was safe and not hurt in some elaborate robbery attempt. As they approached the room at the end of the hallway, officers said they could smell burning crack cocaine. They knocked on the door and 19-year-old Latoya Bowman answered and the smell nearly overwhelmed the deputies. They entered the room and saw 23-year-old Cedric Palmer laying on one of the beds in the room and noticed that the bathroom door was closing. According to the police report, Deputy Worley immediately walked to the door and discovered a white male standing in the bathroom. He looked down and observed a used crack pipe laying in a white bathroom sink in plain view. The white male seen in the bathroom by Deputy Worley was Ken Caminiti. In the bathroom with him were a Coca-Cola can and a water bottle which had both been fashioned into crack pipes, a spoon with cocaine residue, and a book of matches. A 9mm handgun was found under one of the beds, and cocaine residue was found inside Ken's wallet. Bowman, Cedric Palmer, and Caminiti were all arrested and charged with possessing less than a gram of a controlled substance, a felony charge in Texas. It looked like rock bottom, but Ken Caminiti's problems were only beginning. On the next episode of Secondary Lead, the rise and fall of Ken Caminiti. Ken is sentenced for his November arrest, but repeatedly fails to comply with his probation. And while sitting on a folding chair in his garage, Ken Caminiti makes his biggest mark on the game of baseball when he talks to Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated Magazine. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating or a review, and spread the word by telling a friend. Follow us at Secondary Lead on Twitter and Instagram, like our Facebook page, and check out show extras on YouTube. Music is courtesy of PurplePlanet.com and the YouTube Audio Library. Our theme was written and performed by Jim Montgomery and Chris Cottrell. I'm your host, Joe Basile. Thanks for listening.